0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Barron. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers, and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally and, importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Paula Di to the Sustainability Agenda. Paula is Special Advisor to CDP North America, the international nonprofit that helps companies, cities, states, regions, and public authorities disclose their environmental impact. Paula is a leader in strategic global environmental and philanthropic policy, and served formally as President of the International Division of the Chicago Climate Exchange. Thank you very much for joining me today, Paula, on the Sustainability well, Agenda Well, thank you podcast.
1: for having me. It's a pleasure. I appreciate it.
0: Yes, and a very uh, important topic uh, related to your new book and um, uh, deeply investigating and exploring questions around the, I guess, um, the financial transformation, as you talk about it, uh, to deal with, with the climate crisis, which at the heart of that is this question of valuing uh what so-called natural assets and so forth so i'm, I'm very interested to, to talk to you about this topic uh which is a growing momentum for certain although it's 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 clearly been uh in the air for 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 some decades indeed but before we we we, we talk about your book pricing the priceless maybe if you can just tell us a little bit about your background paula and what you do
1: uh sure so um Let's see. I'm a I'm a New Yorker. I live in New York City and New York State, and I was born here. And uh, always wanted to write. Um, just had that 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 yen, that gene, uh, and uh, pursued writing as soon as I could, and and managed to get a few things published in a in a kind of a radical alternative newspaper in New York City called the Village Voice, and. Um, You know, was going to be uh, headed towards a PhD in comparative literature. And, um, you know, there was that proverbial fork in the road. And I saw an ad to, um, uh, I saw an ad to um, uh, 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 be a volunteer writer for uh, uh, someone most people have heard of, named Jacques Cousteau, famous uh, at the time, super famous underwater explorer, father of scuba diving, and uh, pretty much the uh, father of commercial underwater filming. Uh, he gave Louis Mal, the famous French fata- uh, director, his start as a cameraman. And um, Cousteau was working on a book and they had a contract and they needed writers. And so I volunteered thinking that would be an interesting way to acquire some you know, new topic material to write about separately when I got off that job. And um, anyway, I never left that job. I stayed with Cousteau for about twenty years. I became a film writer and a producer and then his chief policy person. and um, went on from there to really see the world and uh, I like to say from coral, my experience with climate change now, I feel very comfortable saying really does start with coral reefs and ends with carbon markets or not ends, but goes as far as carbon markets. because with Cousteau, you really I really saw things uh, you know physical things and because he um was so had such access, tremendous access to heads of state and anybody really, I also could see how the wheels of power worked, you know how how authority was used, how people got ideas and implemented them or didn't, and so I left Cousteau after a certain period, I thought you know okay, he was getting older and the, the world was uh, very rapidly changing, and so I became president of a foundation. And then that was also a turning point. I met, a, a, a I guess, my second major mentor was a guy named uh, Richard Sandor, a very famous economist who was a financial inventor, uh, very involved in creating new financial instruments, among them interest rate derivatives, which I had no idea. I didn't understand them at all. But Richard had this also germ, yen, to... Uh, become involved in climate change. He was one of the first uh, economists, really practical economists to dig into how to set up environmental markets. And uh, we met at the UN and um, uh, we then began to work together and put together this uh, Chicago Climate Exchange, which was the world's first cap and trade emission system. And so I went from there and now currently I am uh, uh, special advisor to the Carbon Disclosure Project, but but all this to say that you know I, I I've come to climate change with a kind of a three hundred and sixty, um, and you know it's the issue of our time I think because it just touches all of our sectors.
0: Yeah, very interesting trajectory indeed. What's on your mind at the moment most? Um, clearly, um, they, they call it a poly polycrisis, um, various interlocking. Uh, uh, crises, but uh, clearly on the environmental front as well, and we've got these uh, cascading heat waves right now. But, but there's um, uh, so lots to think about. But are there one or two issues that are particularly on your mind that are keeping you at the wake at the moment, Paula?
1: Well, I wish there were only two, but I do. I do get eight hours of sleep. I don't know really how, but um, I think my major concern, which is a bit general, is the failure of institutions and the failure of belief. People seem to have less belief in themselves, and certainly less belief in their institutions. I mean, I am speaking to you from the United States, and here we're you know we're in, in chaos with regard to institutions. But it's not just the, the partisanship. It's you know, if you have a rural, I was at a town board meeting a local small community the other night. And, um, you know, this fairly modest family, they live on a road that's, they've got 3000 feet of road surface full of potholes and, 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 and what they called craters. And they had asked the town to fix the road last year and they got no road fixing. And, um, this year, a few weeks ago, they went back to the town board with photographs and, just said, look, we can't get home. We go get groceries. We can't get home. We have to drive around these potholes. Can you at least tell us when this is going to be fixed? And the town board turned to the head of the highway department and said, can you tell them when it's going to be fixed? And the guy said, when I get around to it in front of you know 25 local people. And this poor family, I mean, they got no resolution. They did not get a date, certain And to a person, because the family brought, you know, other people, there were like six families on the road. They walked out and said, you know, we just don't know why we're paying our taxes. And I said to myself, I don't know why you're paying them either. Because, I mean, what could be more simple than at least getting an answer? And this is a very small local institution. This is an all-volunteer government in the town. It's not the United States Congress, so I think we have just this compounding lack of belief in ourselves and our ability to get answers as well as um, uh, uh, be 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 shall we say confident that our institutions care about us. I think that's my my concern, even my own personal concern. I really no longer believe the government in which I generally do believe has my back as as you would say and and I think most people feel that not, not to say that I don't know the good things that the government does, but my faith in institutional, uh, um, you know, institutional inspiration is very, very limited at the moment. And I think that's a crisis because you can't have democracy if people feel the way I'm describing.
0: Right. Yeah. And um, of course, America uh, see in, in, in highlights uh, issues that are also uh, present in other uh, economies, other countries around the world indeed, um, but in a more extreme uh, form indeed. Um, uh, what gives you optimism when you look around, Paula?
1: So back to the first question, I guess the the, the, um, the countervailing and, and, and you don't want the former, what I just described about institutional failure, to erode what I'm about to say. But I think what gives me optimism is the human ability to appreciate beauty and to understand that that there are mysteries in life. And those can be very present. They can be the birth of a child. They can be um, a quiet moment that you can just have, hold for yourself. They can be, oh, wow, there's a flower that wasn't there yesterday And I don't just mean nature loving um, and and going off into the woods and some sort of metaphysical search. It's that we are disposed, people are disposed to understand beauty and peace. And um, I think what gives me optimism is that most of the time, people still have that ability. And not only that, people do have an ability to care for each other still. We certainly saw that during COVID, which although it, it really racked um, our systems. It also brought out the best in many people, not everybody, but in many people. And so you have this yin yang where, where the institutions don't seem to be doing their jobs, certainly not with regard to climate change, but on the other hand, the individuals still get up in the morning with a certain amount of of uh, of, of hope, which becomes collective hope. So I guess my main point is that it's human beings that give me optimism, even though <laughs> there's plenty to be pessimistic about
0: yeah yeah very very interesting very interesting um now um we uh, will go into detail about um many of the the arguments and the uh, data you put forward in, in in the book and uh very interesting is is indeed but just to st- set the scene a little bit i'm just wondering given the poor track record of carbon and other related environmental markets what motivated you to write a book Looking at market approaches to environmental issues right now, Paula.
1: Well, I think it's the last remaining hope, in the sense that, um, and I, you know, I delved into something which normally I don't pay much attention to: accounting. You know, I began to think. I mean, it started really to be perfectly frank. It started um, some years ago at a more at a more gener- general level about about social finance, and you know, why were social services? Always begging for money. Why every time there's a debate about cultural or educational pro? You know why are teachers so underpaid universally in the world? Teachers are super underpaid considering the the work they do and the importance of their work to the rest of the world and the rest of the gen- next generations and so on. And I began to kind of think about that and you know intangible value of a teacher and. Um, then I was in California one day, and that uh, was uh, Uber was just sort of coming onto the scene. In fact, the first time I ever heard about uh, Uber was in Dublin, which is I guess where you are. And um, uh, p- the, the people who, who hired an Uber for me, they were mesmerized by the screen. They had their iPhone, and they were, you know, booking an Uber to pick me up. And there was this little bug of a car coming on the screen. And they said, oh, look, see, you can see it. Isn't that great? And it's going to be here in one minute. And I thought, what's the big fuss? This is just a taxi system on on an iPhone. You know, what what, what is so creative about this that it comes faster? And so I looked into Uber's uh, market cap. And the market cap at that point was higher than General Motors. And I thought, how could this be? It's just a little software program. And I began to think, well, actually, why are these companies so you know, the IT companies so highly uh, capitalized. And, and that's kind of where I, when I was, you know, roughly, uh, I had worked with Richard at the Chicago Climate Exchange. And, of course, the goal there was to price the scarcity. We were ahead of regulation, and our goal there was to get companies to, to um, act as if they were regulated because we weren't in the United States covered by any regulations. And getting them to understand what a cap-and-trade was was a hard job and uh, we managed very successfully in the end but but the point of trying to get across to people that, that the environmental market is not to put a price a price tag a value on nature and say nature is worth you know x the, the, it's more to say the work that nature does is worth x so back to the teacher you know the teachers underpaid well nature is not paid at all nature is an under unpaid worker has been unpaid for you know since humans ever stepped foot on the planet. And when you add up all, all that unpaid work, we really owe nature quite a lot of, uh, of wages. And how do you pay nature? And as you know, people respect what they pay for. You don't pay for something, generally you waste it. And so it's that kind of psychology and that kind of uh, um, uh, drive that, that got me to the book. And I thought it was time to pull some of this stuff together Relative, you know, to, to the timeline, let's say, if you want, you can measure an, uh, climate change by any yardstick that you wish. But if you take the UN series of conferences, we're about to go next fall into COP 28. That's 28 years of conferences of the conference of the parties to the framework convention on climate change, which was kicked off in 92. So if you add another five years or so to 28, um, we're into almost 35 years of, you know, discussion which is really shameful. And so to me, it was a breakthrough. The idea was if we don't start pricing these things, recognizing that we can never really price them high enough, but but converting this idea of pricing not to the assets themselves, but to the work performed by the assets, that we could shift capital to maintaining these assets as compared to just spending them down.
0: Right, yeah. It's interesting you you say that because I guess uh, initiatives to – Uh, pursue market-based approaches to deal with the environment have been around for as long, you know, for 30 years as well. And the evidence so far has not been very good.
1: Well, that's true, but it isn't entirely true. So, I mean, there really aren't that many meaningful tests, at least if we're talking about carbon markets. There's really only one, which is the European Union Emissions Trading Scheme, which had a false start over allocation People didn't understand it, you know. Cap and trade was invented in the United States by the uh, U.S. EPA, focused on sulfur dioxide emissions. That was very successful to to get rid of acid rain. And well, it's a very um,
0: particular situation, acid rain, very specific conditions, very specific very, one gas, very general, but it worked. Unrealizable, really.
1: It, well, except that it, it worked, you know, it worked, and it was a it was a demonstration of the principle. And to transfer that principle to six gases, we were able to do that at Chicago Climate Exchange. We create
0: it's a rather different situation from what we're talking about the global commons and so forth. But it's clearly, it was successful. But I'm just wondering how how far you can go and in, and in, in, analogizing about this that success to to point to the potential for using it in 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 in, in for example in, in global climate.
1: Well, we had, in, in terms of CCX, we had more emissions capped at that time than the National Allocation Plan of Germany. So, you know, we had quite a few millions of tons. We also had members all around the world. But, but you know, we came and went. The, the thing about the European Union uh, ETS is it's kind of sitting there self-contained. And the real reason the markets aren't working particularly well, although emissions reductions have occurred in the EU ETS since they have revamped their their rules and they were up till midnight last uh, New Year's tightening those rules, tightening, ratcheting down the the carbon diet. You have to lose more weight and more weight. But the fact that it it sits there isolated and then you have, I don't know, 25 or 30 other ones, uh, smaller, no liquidity, not connected, you know, a a ton of carbon if you're going to use it as a currency, price on carbon, which everybody talks about as being essential, you can't just you can create it out of thin air. That is what it is. It's a price on thin air, but you need a fungibility. You need a standard set of rules, a common baseline, a common set of targets, and that's where institutional uh, uh, heft would have to come in. And so, you know, m- my goal would be to see an international carbon price within two years. And you know, Article Six negotiations, you probably know, have been going on you know ten years maybe. So somebody just needs to do it. You know, we just need to get a couple of companies that are uh, operating in different jurisdictions and create their own little closed system and start trying it. I mean, at some point, you just have to do things.
0: Right. What about regulation? You know, there are vast areas of our our lives where we have rules, where there are penalties for certain kinds of behavior. We know what the rules are. Why why don't we use regulation more? Why isn't regulation the backbone of uh, our approach to dealing with the environment? Many people would 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 argue, I suppose, it's certainly in vogue at the moment, that many of the you know, uh, greatest environmental and indeed social problems we're now facing are inextricably linked to markets and a particular form of markets, untrammeled, deregulated markets, which have been uh, certainly the, in place for several decades um, I'm just wondering where, do, why, why not regulation and why the focus on, 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 on markets?
1: Well, markets are regulated. I'm talking about regulated markets, not only regulated markets that where you have market oversight, but, um, you know, regulatory drivers. So back to the EU ETS, um, the, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, it, it makes no sense to have an, a, a cap and trade if it's not regulated. You have to have a regulation that sets the targets and penalizes, um, you know, fraud. Um, you know, the principle in the cap and trade is that the price of carbon in a well regulated cap and trade will itself be a penalty. If it, if the price goes so high, uh, for pollution, th- then that's a penalty inherently and you stop, you, you know, you, you stop polluting because it's too expensive so there's that but if you don't regulate the markets in themselves you could have fraud but but you definitely need regulatory drivers i mean ideally you would have a national or international structure of carbon pricing that could include taxes could include uh, um, uh, uh, markets uh, but taxes um, taxes once you put them on are very hard to raise and because of politics so you know Exxon, for example, is still lobbying for carbon tax in the United States. I mean, it's not getting anywhere right now. But, you know, they were delighted with the idea of a carbon tax of about $15 a ton. Why is that? Because that's petty cash for them. And they knew very well that if there was a tax of $15 or so, they could pay it. And that would be the end of the discussion. It would never be raised. There's not a, there's really almost no, with the exception of cigarette taxes in the United States that do tend to be increased every couple of years, there's no record of taxes going up and certainly not setting, setting, uh, you know, a tier system where they go up automatically. And so you can't really rely on taxes because you saw what happened in France with the with the gasoline tax and the gilets uh, gilet jaunes. You know, people because why should you know people are suffering. You know, human, families can't make make their expenses for a lot of reasons. The Ukraine war, lots of different reasons. So going to them about taxes is an on starter. So what does that leave you? That leaves you. Uh, regulations on pollution, this sort of standard environmental protection laws, and I, you know, we 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 couldn't we we can't have too many of those right now. The problem is, uh, again, we don't have a global approach except for the Paris Agreement, and and that's a wonderfully universal agreement. But each country involved has their own uh, what's called the NDC, you know, nationally determined contribution, and those are all uh, individualized; they're not standardized. So until they're standardized, uh, it'll be difficult to to use regulation in, in in the way that that it could be used. But the point of the book is basically we we're just we're just not recording the value of nature properly. At least half the GDP, if you look at the World Economic Forum uh, estimates, say that the work performed by nature is about forty five trillion dollars worth of work a year. Which is roughly half the global GDP, and uh, Bob Costanza's higher end uh, estimate was 125 trillion a year, which is more than the current global GDP. So you know that's either way, it's a it's a hidden, invisible subsidy to our economic system that we are taking for granted, and in fact, we're probably so drowning in red ink. At the moment, if you were to value nature, we'd be all in red ink and in an environmental default, basically. So,
0: yeah, yeah. I, at the same time, using this kind of price and, and putting these figures, for many people, will balk at that and feel I'm very uncomfortable. For example, you know, uh, there are areas of, 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 of our lives that we don't want to see, you know, uh, transferred into financial values uh you know michael Sandel talks about this different kinds of you know areas of our lives that uh it's just not appropriate to think of uh in terms of 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 uh you know markets for or human organs or things like that but just even putting figures on these ideas it it, it is potentially a very narrow way of looking at uh at, at at nature and also is 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 uh has many many conceptual problems but in terms of actually putting value on this, who puts the value on it uh it's 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 it seems to be rife with with methodological issues
1: well yes and no i mean there is a paradox, and I'm not saying you know necessarily that we we value nature and put a number on nature. What what those numbers were that I quoted were the work nature performs. Um,
0: when we talk about these mm-hmm. kind of figures, that distinction often does not seem to be made, or or I, I don't see what that changes. Maybe, maybe you can help there.
1: Okay, so a, a swamp. People look at the swamp and they think wasteland. Now, if it's a wasteland it's valued at a certain amount or nothing and, and, and so on. Um, uh, but the swamp sitting there is not just doing nothing. It's filtering water. Now you can calculate the price of water in that area, wherever that swamp is, but people are, some people do pay for water. Most people pay something for water. So that's the price on the water. And the fact that the swamp is filtering it for free if 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 we if the swamp were being paid we'd be paying a lot more for the water but since the swamp is is filtering the water free uh, for free we pay a, you know a price that's uh, po- politically and and uh, you know palatable
0: i, so, I struggle with this idea if we paid the swamp at using we are really in a very uh targeted narrow way of looking at nature just you know how People don't think like this about nature, you know. Well,
1: that's the problem. I mean, you know, we, you, know we, this, we, you
0: you mentioned in in, in your book the uh, recent report, uh, the bio, biodiversity report, the Das Gupta report, and you know, it starts off talking about it's about biodiversity and an approach to biodiversity. We are all asset managers, you know. This is, uh, you know, uh, we manage our, our the assets of nature. It's Many people would find this a very problematic narrowing of the experience of of nature.
1: It is a narrowing, but it isn't an exclusivity. It doesn't exclude the more metaphysical uh, approach. And in fact, you could argue that this, quote, narrowing enables us to think more freely and esoterically about it.
0: Does it because when you tell no. well where are these other metaphysical values then when you come to the value of a, a swamp for example who sets the values um where are the price signals actually here
1: Okay so the swamp so the swamp is sitting there somebody owns it or nobody owns it but but it has there's a title somewhere and it's somewhere on somebody's tax rolls and so, you know, if I am going to buy the land and there is a swamp on it, and I am planning to pave it over, if I had to pay for the value of the swamp water filtration value, I probably wouldn't buy the swamp, and I wouldn't pave it, pave it over. It would remain uh, open to filter water. It would have been, you know, because I couldn't afford to pay. The price that we're not paying the work for the work we're not paying nature to do, so that swamp stays in the commons, as compared to me buying and come in cheap land, pave it over, you know, drain it, put a shopping mall. So you know, the, the, if, if if so, you have property that's a price signal. If you go, say for example, to something else in the uh, in the book, the forest resilience bond, which is very very um, relevant with all these wildfires, it's not pricing. The forest per se, in a metaphysical sense, it's toting up the benefits of a standing forest and to whom uh, to the beneficiaries of of that standing forest who are a disparate group. And in that particular case, there's the hydropower companies that benefit if the forest is standing because naturally the forest retains water and sends water into the water table. And if you're a hydropower utility, you want water going over the dam if you're a tourism operator. And you want people to come and, 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 and uh, enjoy a wilderness experience. You don't want it to burn down. If you're uh, the California wildfire uh, services uh, department and you're charged with protecting the forest, you don't have enough money in your budget to protect the forest if all you're doing is putting fires out. So this bond attempts to tote up the value, the benefits that all of those beneficiaries will experience over time money up front so that from the private sector creating of this bond with a premium, and then the cash comes into the system and then is distributed through the system, through the California wildlife service to actually protect the forest, to go in there, clean it out, take out the brush, um, generate, you know, from the brush biomass jobs that are local and nobody cuts the forest and nobody's, you know, nobody's, um, Putting a, a cap on the value of forest, they're just toting up the benefits that can be toted up, that can be credibly quantified, and that gets packaged into a bond, and investors, you know, put up the capital, and then you have, you know, an infusion of capital, and that securitizes the benefits, and frankly, converts the forest from being a nice to have to an essential piece of infrastructure. And as you know, if you carry infrastructure on your books, they're assets, and you are obliged to maintain assets, as compared to carrying forest preservation as a cost on your budget. And and poor California budget just is never sufficient to to maintain the forest. So the Forest Resilience Bond comes in. And um, that's an example of, quote, pricing the priceless, because the standing forest is priceless, except you can come to some uh, agreement about these uh, quantifiable elements
0: financial markets are prone to booms and busts. They've not got a very good track record, have they really, uh, in, in that respect? Uh, we saw what happened in 2008. Uh, we see this again and again. Um, and indeed, many uh, of the key actors involved in uh, building this kind of infrastructure and this you know, financialization of nature are at the same time, you know, funding uh, fossil fuel companies and so forth. They are not necessarily the first people you would think of that would actually be guardians of nature.
1: Well, I mean, not everybody is double dealing in that way. There's increasing divestment and separation and getting out of fossil fuels. But, you know, perfect being the enemy of the good. I mean, I, I think... I do say somewhere in the book pretty clearly that, you know, capitalism has been rapacious and cruel most since it, since it was started. But on the other hand, um, I do feel now, back to the original question, you know, 35 years of discussion and we've done the experiment of, you know, separating capital from the problem, letting capital do whatever capital will do, and letting capital bumble its way into quote good works. And what I'm saying is that that capital if we can align it with the science of climate change and truly identify risks and then get the policy in there, you know, if you think of science, policy and capital as three key elements to dealing with with climate change, science being the, you know, the informational source, policy being the railroad track that, you know, gives some standardization, and then capital, which is greasing the whole machinery, um, they they all run on different timelines, and we need to get them running together. And um, I think there's enough critical mass in the in the private sector now, uh, where they're more receptive to channeling. You'd be surprised how many, you know, I, I, as I said earlier, I, I advised CDP. So many companies are craving regulatory certainty now. There's such a chaotic. Uh, mixed bag of regulations that, you know, you could almost think of getting some more regulation in that would therefore be the policy envelope into which some of these more esoteric financial instruments can fit. But, but basically, you're right. I mean, it's a paradoxical thing. It it, it challenges uh, people to think twi- to, uh, in, in different ways, you know, two different ideas. And I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who said the definition of intelligence is to be able to hold two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. I mean, we should be able to.
0: Now, you you argue, uh, I, I think, in the book as well, that uh, something that the current Policies do prioritize uh, short-term growth. You recognize that over environmental concerns. How, how can we shift this focus and who needs to be involved in this? Do you think it's possible?
1: Yeah, well, that's the idea. I mean, short-term growth, you don't have short-term thinking. If you think of nature as infrastructure, you have long-term thinking by definition. So it's almost, uh, you've heard, um, no doubt, and I think you've interviewed him, uh, uh, Ronald Cohen, and he's advocating uh, Gape, Generally Accepted Impact Principles for accountants. Right now, we have Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, GAP, and you know those are debits, credits that that, that every auditor understands and comes in and looks at the financial books. So Sir Ronald is arguing for Gape, where you have that impact number. What is your negative impact? What is your positive impact? And so as we begin to change the financial structures, um, you you will begin to get away from short-termism for sure. And I think I put in the book the example – I know I put in the book the example of the uh, Puma profit and loss, environmental profit and loss. And, you know, Puma makes all kinds of products. And uh, Jochen Zeitz uh, was quite a a pioneer. He thought – I think it was in the year 2000, maybe 2010. um, What if I had to pay – for all these nat- natural services, what would that do to my business? And he hired Sustainalytics, uh, sustainalytics, a very uh, uh, um, um, you know s- skilled environmental uh, assessment firm, and they went in and they looked at all the inputs: what you know, land value, land disruption to grow uh, uh, fiber, uh, uh, water input, pollution charges. You know that that you know if if they were charging for carbon emissions, what would it be uh, worth in the market? Or being charged, I should say, if they were being charged where they were in production. Anyway, long story short, they showed revenue of 200-something euro that year and uh, profit, uh, the environmental negatives of uh, uh, a significant sum, which reduced their their bottom line by, by, by a lot. So I think they went from 200 euros... To about 45 euros in profit, I have to check the numbers in the book. But a big chunk of what they had presumed was earnings was actually debt to nature. And so, if you start changing the way you account for things, literally, I think you can get away from short-termism. And that's that's uh, kind of the essential point of pricing the priceless. That once you start pricing the inputs as costs, this unpaid work again you know, you're not making the kind of money you think. So so people are, are, you know, in a fog if they think we're making all the money that is shown on the books. We're not. We're just not paying half the costs of nature if you want to go back to half the global GDP.
0: Yeah, very interesting, very interesting, Paul. Now, can we talk about the global south um, where a lot of the action is taking place at the moment, a lot of momentum, the carbon offsets and various... Uh, reforestation uh initiatives so forth um and um, there are big issues there i guess in the sense that um significant power imbalances uh between uh the, co- the big, big companies operating in 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 these areas um and indeed the the uh track record for example just on the carbon offsets is deplorable it's uh, very very difficult to find carbon offsets that actually meet the criteria that they're actually valid etc cetera, etc cetera. you talk a little bit about some of the particular issues taking this approach uh this market-based approach this financialization approach in in the global south
1: yeah so um glad you brought that up okay so offsets firstly the voluntary carbon market, which is what you're referring to mostly, uh, you know, th- there's no diet there. There's no regulation there. There's no cap there. Those offsets are kind of being generated in case there's a company that's made a promise and wants to buy them you know, their purpose of offsets is precisely to be sold into a cap and trade. Without a cap, there's very likely to be no environmental benefit. So it's very important that the voluntary carbon market gradually become integrated to the regulated carbon market. So that's a fundamental for me.
0: Can I just ask, what is the uh, relative scale of the regulated and the unregulated?
1: Well, the regulated markets are, are larger right now. I mean, in, in terms of emissions under control, so you you, you have this very large uh, 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 voluntary market. But it's it, it it by large the amount of money being invested in the, in the offset projects, the amount of money being spent on verification. You know, it, there's a lot of money in the voluntary market, but from the point of view of emissions control, the regulated markets are larger. Now, these offsets are um, merely tools to give some flexibility in, in the regulated market. At least that's the, uh, that is, the, I think, the best way of looking at them. Because if I'm running a company and I've done everything possible to reduce my emissions in a given year, and I'm still unable to meet my regulatory target, I should be able to buy a small percentage of offsets so that I hit my target. Because we have a global problem, I should be able to buy verified offsets for anywhere in the world and sell them and, 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 and have them acceptable accepted by the regulatory authority that's governing my, my, my company or my performance.
0: But that's a theoretical argument. The reality is that there's they're very, very poor uh, track record.
1: Well, it's not as poor as you think. I mean, the offset market is, is, is easy to kick around. And believe me, at CCX, I have, uh, I have the, the battle scars to show for it. Because people, you know, let's take the, the planting of trees, which is the classic, right? You know, trees are trees, you, you can plant them, but you shouldn't cut down the rainforest to plant the monoculture so that you can sell offset credits. That makes no sense. Um, you you know a tree a stand you you make an investment in a tree uh, farm that is capturing carbon and is verifiably doing so and then there's a storm and the trees blow down contracts would have built in this risk so you don't exactly get paid if there's a blowdown you can't sell those offsets if there's no longer the trees there that are sequestering the carbon and that's that's contained in the contract so there's not really uh, a free ride there. And, you know, as far as the global South goes, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of danger right now that the global South just becomes, it's a new form of sort of the resource curse, whereas particularly, say, the Congo, where I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the Congo, and this is pertinent in Ireland too, peat. You know, peat contains thousands of years of carbon. It's a super, super sequestration uh, material. And the Congo, on the, above it are, is phenomenal rainforest, and below that peat layer is oil. So you have three, a stack of, of sequestering, sequestering, and unsequestering. And everybody's asking the Congo not to disrupt their rainforest. And the Congo is one of the poorest countries in the world. Now, why should they not go after that oil and sell it? I mean, why shouldn't they do, uh, burn up that oil? We've burned ours. And yet, if they could be paid not to, if price were hundred euro a ton, you would just transfer that sum to the Congo and they wouldn't have to dig up that oil or cut those trees down and presumably manage that money for the benefit of the people. Now you could say there'll be corruption, there'll be this, there'll be that, but it's the only answer for the global South, in my opinion, is to transfer value to their undeveloped resources sufficiently so that they can develop in a different way not based on exploitation of those resources and selling those offsets, you know, to a company, yeah, that might get lazy and say, well, you know, these uh, offsets from the Congo are pretty cheap. I'll do that instead of what else I would have had to do. So, you know, you can't have police forces uh, everywhere, but we do need some other kind of authority to oversee these, these transactions. But the, 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 the very difficult thing right now is that everybody, uh, uh, not everybody, there's a lot of criticism of these offsets. And consequently, the project developers are, are bending over backwards to get them verified. And if you're going to sell a ton for $5 a ton or 12 into California, and it's costing you you know, $75 to, to verify, you're not going to do those projects. And that's uh, environmentally detrimental because we need these offset projects because they have value in themselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, well, the, the latest figures I, I've seen, and, and maybe you've got um, more up-to-date or more accurate, or maybe these aren't, but that 90% of well, the rainforest carbon offsets are, are worthless, literally worthless. So this gap between the...
1: What does that mean, worthless? What, worthless in what way? There's no market for them, then they're worthless. But, I mean, the sequestration value is not worthless.
0: So, um, for example, in Vera's case, you know, they that they, they, only a tiny percentage actually showed evidence of deforestation reduction right so that's uh, in the first thing the massive overstatement uh, of, of the value or the impact of, of these uh, projects um, major human rights issues I mean it's that's just one 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 report I mean it's it's not news that this is is uh, highly ineffective and uh, there's a lot of uh, greenwashing huge amount of greenwashing um, and the Step from the concept and the idea to the reality is that the reality is that these have been uh, abused and subject massively to greenwashing, the red plus scheme, major problems there uh, on the ground as well. So I'm just wondering about the, the, the step between the, the, the idea that you get and makes sense and the reality of how it's actually implemented. And just worry about these kinds of trends when you, uh, Uh, write these kind of ideas large across the, you know, the biodiversity, across all of our environmental problems?
1: Well, I mean, to begin with, and you know, if we're going to, you need an internal clock, ethical clock, number one, if you're unethical going into the market, you're going to be unethical coming out of it. And it doesn't matter, um, you know, what regulations there are, if you're disposed to be unethical.
0: Well, is that true, Paula, that it doesn't matter what regulations you have if you're disposed to be unethical? Well,
1: you'll cheat. You know, there'll be fraud. There's fraud everywhere.
0: Yeah, but there will be you penalties. Know, so, there will be penalties. Well, but not everybody time. gets
1: caught. Yeah. You know, not everybody gets caught. So the ones who do get caught are... The so, well, principle that regulation has no
0: impact on the, you know, the volume of unethical behavior. I, I don't know about that. Is that, is that really true?
1: Well, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you have, a, 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 if everyone in the carbon market is supposed to be unethical, you're going to have a largely unethical market. I don't think that most people go into the voluntary market with the goal of cheating. Now, there probably are cheats, but then you get into what kind of cheating are we talking about? And then, you know, back to red. And again, you know, I had these arguments uh, over and over uh, 25 years ago or 20 years ago about, for example, no-till agriculture in the Midwest of the United States, where farmers were, had already been uh, using this practice. Why? Because it was cheaper for them not to till the soil. And it turns out that if you use no-till, you're sequestering a lot of carbon. So we at CCX and other people were generating, uh, you know, measurements and trying to see, okay, how much sequestration is additional to, um, uh, thanks to this no-till process. And we, it was very difficult to judge the additionality. So we grandfathered in a couple of years and we started crediting the farmers from a given baseline year. Vilified, vilified because we gave a couple of years of credit to the farmer before we signed the contract with them because, quote, wasn't additional. And, you know, it wasn't, but we're talking a couple of thousand tons, nothing. And if we had not credited the farmer for those earlier years, the farmer would have had to stop doing no-till, wait for 10 years and start over. So 10 years of sequestration lost. So you know it's not so simple, and the science of the of the of these offsets is also complicated. As I said, you can have a storm. You can have a, sequestration uh, is, is probably changing daily now with these high heat. Uh, the temperature does affect the sequestration. You can set up a project and think you're going to sequester this many tons over this many years, and then bingo, temperature is way higher, and you're not sequestering that.
0: I think that uh, speaks to the point that it, this this is very complex it's um the, the the valuations are uncertain uh price signals really don't really exist and then you've got this massive question of uh interdependence of 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 you know uh i guess different uh well maybe from a biodiversity perspective and so forth so it seems like a very fraught complex challenging area to try and do this well and as you say things changing so quickly so i mean how can we be confident that that we can you know come up with mean because the whole point is to come up with as you say some some kind of accurate uh value as well the worth of the the, the work as, as you call it but if the figures themselves are meaningless if the valuations the the, the models of valuations don't hold water and uh what why do it
1: <laughs> yeah well they do i mean i i have to disagree that there's no credible valuations there are you know there are ways of valuing the water filtration there are carbon price signals it's not true there's no price signal you know there may not be a comparable price signal in the voluntary market because as i said earlier there's no standardization but it's not true that there's not uh, you know reliable quantification it's just imperfect and so is life and so is science and you know, we do need new systems to oversee these, uh, these offsets. But the, the primary point of the offsets that I, that I said at the outset is they really do need to be tied into a regulatory system. Otherwise, it is a kind of uh, in the eye of the beholder. I'm running a company. I pledge that I'm going to be net zero by 2040. This is 2023. By 2040, I'm doing something else or I'm not even on the planet. And what happens to my promise And I buy all these offsets to, you know, now to, to use periodically until 2040. You know, that's a bit crazy. You know, that doesn't hold any water, literally. But, but you can, you can build in offsets to a regulatory market where you have sufficient oversight. You, where do you see that? well you know all of the existing regulatory markets do allow some offsets california does reggie in the united states does euets very little but beginning to look at more china very important part of their uh uh, uh work is 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 uh, their market will be offsets but those are tied into you know your your pollution reduction requirement if if they if they're not tied into an actual carbon diet if you will then 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 it's tricky to to manage the value of offsets in terms of reductions what always occurs in itself an offset will generate some natural benefit planting trees doesn't hurt you know it doesn't hurt doing no till agriculture doesn't hurt capturing methane in a landfill doesn't hurt it's 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 the question of does it does the reduction accrue to a larger target of reduction? Because I'm capturing methane in my little town uh, landfill and you're not. So does my hundred tons reduction get neutralized by your hundred tons emission? If we're both, if we're not both doing it, then in fact, net, there's no environmental improvement. So you have to, you have to have some kind of coordination. Now this sounds like, you know, the gigantic hand of uh, ultra super, super, natural super national governments, but maybe we need new kinds of authorities. You know, if this was easy, uh, we'd have done it as most things in life. If you make something look
0: easy, you, you people- could argue if it was effective, if it was something that, that uh, held promise that after 30 years, we would have a, a lot better evidence that it actually works.
1: Well, no, 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 because the, actually, you know, the real cap and trade in EU ETS, you can't really start dating it till probably 20, 2015 Paris, uh, you know, it existed before, but they had problems, and and all of these newer ones that are just sort of just dating are part of the NDCS of I don't know about thirty something companies. So it, the carbon markets really didn't start as uh, you know. Thirty years ago, but I mean, as I say, they're you know they're they're handy to whip the whipping posts, but you know, give me another answer. But Paul, you
0: say it's hard to whip, but if you're making arguments and saying that this is the way forward and this is the approach, surely you've got to produce some evidence. <laughs> you know, they're not no, the whipping. I mean, way there forward. is evidence. There's such massive, uh, uh, you know, massive um, uh, momentum from the financial institutions and other uh, bodies towards this financialization of nature that people would say, "Hang on, let's just see what is the evidence." here you know well, there is evidence
1: you have, you have
0: pretty, the, patchy, the, the you know, pretty patchy the reports that have been written uh you know on the red but on, on, on various aspects uh, is pretty patchy or, or or do you think it's pretty convincing
1: I think it's convincing and patchy. You know, I mean, back to the two ideas in the head at the same time. It's patchy because there's no global regulation. It's convincing because, like, I look at things like, as I said, the Forest Resilience Bond or the Coral Reef Insurance or some of the other things in the book. These are interesting new ideas for taking, for putting value to Coral Reef. Coral Reef is a piece of infrastructure, zero value. The coastal property that it protects, very valuable. And so we have to kind of okay. What so does that mean? We just let the coral reefs sit there, get smashed to smithereens, b- b- disappear? But come on, these are straw man arguments. You just say why the, the alternative
0: isn't between pricing a piece of coral infrastructure and it being just dis- and sitting there and it being destroyed.
1: It is in the sense that the one, the fifty percent of the coral reefs are boiling and disappearing no matter what we do. But if we don't have a driver of some kind, which could be regulation. To get in, you know to 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 uh, protect and, and and categorize the reef as as uh, infrastructure it won't be categorized so here's this insurance product that that comes in and says you know we'll insure the reef if you protect it right.
0: but again these are all very theoretical arguments and 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 certainly sound like you know why not why not but um it's just looking at it and the research that I've seen doesn't provide compelling evidence that these market-based approach produces better results. And in many cases, I just mentioned the carbon offsets, something like 90% of them actually have some significant problem, either in terms of overstating uh, completely the, the the impact or various other kinds of ra- uh, greenwashing and so forth. Um, so, You know, I guess that's something that will be on people's minds. You know, if the vast sums of money we're talking about going into, you know, uh, capital, going into what we call natural assets, you know, uh, we would like to see some pretty good evidence.
1: Well, you've got the evidence that nothing is happening. You've got the evidence that the only reduction that's ever occurred of significance in emissions was during COVID when nobody moved around. So you've got evidence there. I dispute the 90%, but I take your point. What I'm only saying is that if we don't open our minds to a new set of experiments and a new way of valuing what we depend on, we're going to have what we have, which is lamentable abuse and wastage and, you know, a default. Nature is breaking down and it's breaking down because the work it performs for us is not economically uh, valuable, valued and, or even uh, acknowledged. And so it's like having 100 workers that you don't pay day after day after day. And you think, oh, I'm doing so well. Why? I don't pay salaries.
0: Now, in your book, you, you, yeah, you, you certainly pre- present uh, both sides of the argument in many uh, different uh, areas when you're uh, lenses, when you're looking at these questions. I'm just wondering about this question of valuing natural assets. Um, many economists have raised questions about uh, approaches to this and um I'm wondering and you you outlined uh, critiques and, and various approaches as well what do you think is the most effective approach and uh, and why Paula
1: well I think you need you know all of the above in a sense I mean back to the accounting you know the UN has had these satellite accounts for for a long time where you know externalities ecosystem services which is the technical term for paying the swamp um or valuing the swamp, you know, these, these, these measures have been out there. They've been, you know, uh, controversial, but they're more and more, more sophisticated and you have hundreds and hundreds of examples now of countries all over the world that have incorporated uh, uh, their value of nature in their, you know, national accounts, which now the UN is integrating into a more formalized system requiring. So the sovereign value, the value of a sovereign state increasingly will reflect the the state of their environmental assets, how much degradation, how much water pollution, how much water, uh, um, uh, you know, how much uh, careful handling of, of nature as a reflection of the sovereign wealth of the country, of the credit worthiness of the country, you know? And so if country begins to, I mean, even in the United States, we just started a whole thing. It won't kick in for too long from now, but, you know, to rethink our national books so you know, people look at you. You go to get a new credit card. Somebody does a credit check on you, and they find that you, you know, defaulted six times, and you're you're in debt way beyond beyond your salary. Nobody's going to give you a new credit card. And every country in the world is in that same state where we are overdrawn on nature, and we're not seeing how much we depend on it. So all I'm saying is, you know, I don't have an answer, but I'm just saying that that we haven't the, the, the in a hundred years we haven't really understood any of these dynamics, and now the scarcity and the vulnerability of nature is so evident, compounded by this tremendously rapidly evolving science of climate change. You know, these temperature uh, extremes have been predicted, but not day after day after day. One in four people in the United States today, today as I'm speaking, are under a heat alert. That was unheard of. And what are the Republicans saying? Let's plant a billion, a trillion trees. You know, so until we break through with some new thinking where the, the problem's eating into itself, it's eating itself, this climate change problem. So I just want something new.
0: Yeah, well, I'm also wondering in in, in the US, we talked about at the beginning, the the, the polarization, the extreme views and so forth, Already we've seen massive kickback in various ways against the ESG uh, agenda, I suppose you'd say, uh, still playing out. Are there risks that uh, this kind of uh, questioning will take place when people are looking at this uh, natural accounting and so forth? There's a very strong uh, driver, the the shareholder fiduciary responsibilities and so forth, maximizing profits on the corporate side. Uh, When you start to introduce something that, uh, dare I say, muddies the water, uh, takes into account a range of other uh, values, uh, presumably there will be a risk of of, of major uh, kickback as well from from, uh, states and indeed uh, other financial institutions perhaps.
1: Yeah, well, you're beginning to see that. I mean, ESG is, again, slightly different than, than uh, you know, ecosystem services, obviously. But, you know, again, if you have trillions of dollars to be invested in the world, why not try to capture some of it into, you know, let's say goods versus bads? So ESG funds where companies invest more in, in green companies or B corporations or people who can make a case that is auditable that they are, you know, looking at social values or environmental values in their day to day – why not invest in those? If you're at least, if you're not going to lose money doing that, or even if you're willing to lose a little bit of money, but most people won't lose money. But the um, uh, the uh, uh, performance of these ESG funds is fairly stable now, and there's a lot of data that, as I say, you don't really lose money. You won't make thirty percent, but that's for individual investors to decide. And of course, you know, public pension funds are very invested in ESG, uh, uh, etc. But Uh, Certainly here in this country, you have a fantastically fanatical, uh, uh, anything uh, that has any um, link to uh, climate change is suspect. And certainly anything that Democrats are doing is suspect. So you can have, again, back to two contradictory ideas, you can have the governor of Florida preventing the state's pension fund, forbidding it from investing in anything that's called ESG on the very same day that it was announced, you know, nobody, no insurance company would write flood insurance in Florida ever again. <laughs> um, so, you know, yes. I mean, too woke. too woke and, you know, woke, the culture wars in the United States have, have yeah. reached a point of paralysis, political paralysis. And that's another very dangerous thing, because if you, for all the reasons we've just been kicking back and forth, you know, it's complicated. You need thoughtful, you need people like you to push back on people like me, and then me to push back on you. You need, you need to have a, an intelligent debate about complexities. And you can only have that if you have enlightened leadership who are willing to entertain a certain amount of ambiguity and then synthesize it to something that's, you know, palatable. And we don't have that now. And without that, you're going to have a lot of complications.
0: What, what do you see as the few key moves that you think would uh, help to, uh, shall we say, uh, cement the infrastructure, mixing my uh, metaphors there, um, to, to, to reach the next stage to, for your vision of an uh, a, a economic system that takes into account the value of, of uh, the environment?
1: So you're asking for my wish list, so I'll get on my uh, <laughs> on my wish list box. But I, st- I think the number one thing, and even if it was experimental, the number one thing would be to link up these cap and trades, these regulated markets, and see what happens. You know, China, Europe, uh, California, Reggie, anywhere there's a regulated market to just link them up. And by linking them up, I mean, you know, incorporate, standardize the targets, standardize the baselines- and see what happens, see if we can trade, you know, bona fide allowances as easily as currency crosses borders, because it is an international language, the price on carbon. So that would be one. The other would be to take this Gape principle that uh, Ronald Cohen talks about further and, and really pr- refine that I, you know, how do we measure the impact, negative and positive, and really put, fu- uh, you know, in- invest in more data, more refinement of the quantification, to give you a little bit of, uh, uh, to honor a bit, you know, your, your pushback. And the third thing would be to really, uh, you know, work with, with the public about money. And I, I, would, I would put myself in this category that, you know, it was a pleasure for me to write this book. I love to write, but because this was a new topic finance, Ooh, whoever thought I could ever get involved with finance. This is an exclusive province that only specialized people, you know, can handle. Well, that's not true. And because we've kind of left it to specialists, it has gotten, you know, kind of uh, corrupt and, and rapacious. So, you know, think about, you know, if we all thought more about the value of the things that we buy, you know, are we getting our money's worth, so to speak? And then where's our money going? What is our bank, the bank that has your checking account or that gave you that new credit card, you know, where where are they investing? You know, ask the bank manager next time if you could find the bank manager you know, wh- where does the money go? And there's there's increasing scrutiny of, of what the travel of money. Where is money going and for what purpose? And I think those three things, you know, would help Car- international carbon price, much more scrutiny of, of disposition of funds, and also uh, more research on the impact side of the quantifiable. And, um, you know, so we, we can do the balance sheets. You know, if, if every company, think if every company did an environmental PL. If they were required to, that would be a revolution right there
0: Well, I suppose in many ways, the journey towards what you might call standardized gap and so forth in in in, in America and internationally has been a uh, multi decade um, not an easy uh, journey, and presumably when you come to looking at these other kinds of values and measures and so forth, one can expect something similar and which is uh, probably uh not uh in uh that helpful given the kind of time frames we're operating under.
1: Yeah, I mean there again, you know, perfect can't be the enemy of the good because, you know, again, you can't cut corners, you can't cheat, you can't sort of speculate uh on hot air, but the fact is that that we have to get going. And you know, we're ready to tear up the, here's a good example. We're ready to tear up the deep sea to go down and get these manganese nodules to bring them up this is all a private private market to do what with the manganese nodules to make batteries and to do what the batteries green economy you know zero fossil fuel to my mind that should not go forward as a private sector initiative that would be a real example of where if we could there is the international seabed authority but they're kind of They regulate and they permit. So we possibly need some new arbitration where you have this mystery of the deep sea. Nobody knows what this extraction from the deep sea actually will uh, do and, and disrupt in the ocean. It's thousands of miles from anywhere they want to do this mining. They bring up these nodules. They shoot, you know, they dig out the bottom of the ocean. They bring the, uh, the, the the nodules up through the water column. They shoot the water back into the sea, filled with dirt, and the and the manganese nodules stay on the deck of a ship uh, that then takes them somewhere. And then, what do we do with the batteries? Well, then now you can have an iPhone that's an iPhone 14 instead of an iPhone 13. <laughs> uh, and 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 so, are we going to make this trade off and allow? people to do whatever they want with the batteries after we have paid zero to get them from the sea. The the inherent value of those manganese nodules is way more than the cost of getting at them. And so, you know, maybe there's a case where we need a new kind of authority to make a determination. And if it's decided that there's a sufficient guarantee that there'll be a major impact on stemming climate change from deep sea mining, then whatever profits of it, should be distributed for the common good. That profit should not go into the private pockets of companies because we only have one deep sea, and that's our last gamble. And, you know, we're kind of at that now.
0: Yeah. In your experience um, looking at uh, environmental markets, should we say, um, what is the right balance or have you some examples where the regulation uh, works hand-in-hand with the market?
1: Well, I have, you know I go back again to the uh, to the EU ETS where you know they went through a certain amount of growing pain, and now it's working. I mean, they have a they stipulate an amount of reduction that must occur, and it has to occur. And if you don't make your target, you either a fined or you have to buy. You know, you have you have to buy your way out of the of the. Uh, you, in other words, you have to buy in the market and subject yourself to the higher prices and at some point it becomes too expensive to to keep on polluting.
0: Are there lessons from that kind of regulatory system?
1: Yeah, the lesson is, you know, again, you know, it's so interesting when I first went to China, <clears throat> we started the first carbon market there. Um it was me, Richard Sander, a guy named Jeff wong who was our interlocutor and the three of us. And on the other side of the table there were you know, three or four officials from PetroChina. And behind them were 30 people, 30 young people. And I used to sit there thinking, what are these 30 people doing here? You know, what? why are they here? Who are they? And it turns out they were learning. They were being trained in carbon markets. They were being trained in how to negotiate with Westerners. They were being trained in environmental derivatives. They were listening because everything was being translated. And a whole generation of Chinese was educated in carbon markets. We, on the other hand, in the West, you know, the Kyoto Protocol, there was a lot of fits and starts. And so the lessons are that this is not easy and it's a real profession and it takes a while to get it to be credible, where somebody like you will, will you know, will have more confidence. And even somebody like me, because I don't, I certainly know it's not perfect. But we learned that it's not easy and you have to really get a bunch of people in uh, up to speed and knowing how to manage it. But once you get the system set up and it's big enough, it has to be big. It can't be small. It has to have scale. We're talking millions and millions of tons. It's laughable when people, uh, you know, uh, 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 stress themselves out about a thousand tons or even a million tons. Most people have no idea what a large number of tons are. And, you know, a large number of times is multi-millions, not multi-thousands. And so, you know, we need systems that are huge. And so I guess what I'm saying is what we've learned is baby steps don't work anymore. And we have to accelerate and, and try to perfect some of these systems. And that requires stepping outside a little bit, maybe, of the, of the current prescription of negotiation schedule. You know, COP28 is coming up. Is it going to break any new ground or is it just going to rehash what COP27 had the hundred, I think it's a hundred billion dollars that the North has promised the South uh, to to mitigate climate change, and they gave them special drawing rights so that they don't have to pay as high a premium when they borrow. You know, basically that's nonsense. We owe them. If you, you know, if you go back to, are they sequestering carbon in the rainforest? The answer is yes. And why not then pay for that? So you know, in terms of special drawing rights, we've been drawing on nature and we're still loaning money to the South. Actually, the South is loaning their environmental services to us. And so we should be paying them.
0: Sorry, I'm mindful of the time. And thank you so much for your patience. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned scale, you mentioned China. What is the lay of the land now in terms of uh, China uh, and uh, its approach and using more market-based approaches to dealing with environmental issues?
1: Well, there was just an article in the New York Times yesterday pointing out that Ford Motor Company has uh, made a deal with the uh, Chinese counterpart for the production of batteries because uh, Ford doesn't know how to do it, and the Chinese do. And, you know, again, in some ways they're way ahead, um, very autocratic uh, country, of course, uh, way more than when I negotiated uh, with the, the, the Tianjin Climate Exchange, but... I, but there again, the Chinese government seems to have understood that the, ultimately the imperative is going to be on the side of reducing emissions and however you can, whatever technology you can perfect. And they've thrown themselves into that. And we have not, on, and certainly not in the United States. And so, again, you know... China, if they were to set up a carbon market, it would be the largest commodities market in the history of the world. We'd want it to be ethical. We'd want it to be verifiable. So we ought to be tying up together now. So, you know, it really depends on the power balance among countries. And, you know, to 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 work on climate change would be a very peaceful, could be, you know, a world peace kind of negotiation instead of what we have with the war in the Ukraine where we have no answer for that war except more war. So, you know, I I just keep thinking it's one planet, uh, you know, it's a beautiful place and, and it's very, 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 very fragile right now. So we need to get going, move from fragile to precious.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because there seems to be some small hints that uh, John Kerry and uh, and others are trying to separate out the climate issues. Who knows in the current climate and the current uh, uh, levels of antagonism and economic uh, warfare, I suppose you could say. But uh, what's next for you, Paula?
1: Well, uh, I have a new novel in mind. I think I'll take a step back from all this. I'm certainly, you know, I'm giving I'm giving some talks in the fall. I'm giving a talk next week in New York. I'm going to be at Bath uh, Spa University in October and uh, various talks on, on this book, uh, you know, uh, over the next half a year or so. Um, I'm going to kind of try to push the idea as much as I can. But, you know, maybe this is all I have left to say about it. I don't know, but I, you know, I'm I'm going to keep writing and uh, keep uh, uh, debating with people like you.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today and your patience and for the important work you're doing, analyzing, thinking out loud about these questions, which are at the heart of some of the most important uh, questions that we have to address uh, when it comes to climate, how we deal with the uh, climate and the environmental, related environmental crises and and standalone environmental crises of one kind or another. But thank you so much for your time today, Paula.
1: Thank you so much. It was
0: a pleasure to talk to you. If you enjoy the sustainability agenda, consider joining the Deep Transformation Network, an online global community for people who recognize that our civilization is in existential crisis and who want to engage with others in facilitating a deep transformation toward a life-affirming future on a regenerated earth. The network, which is over 3,000 people worldwide, offers a nurturing place for ideas, practices and approaches for civilizational transformation as well as an inspiring and nourishing place to cultivate intentional community find it at www.deeptransformation.network. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.